Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Things might look more abstract for me, and I think it's a journey of accepting and being able to adjust to how I've actually processed things versus what I guess I was told I should process. Neurodivergence is something that most of us, if not all of us, queer people manage on the daily. Living in the closet, a good thumb to the noggin, and grandma's good old genetics make it very easy for queer people to live with anxiety, constant rumination, deep shame, impulsivity, anxiety, and depression. The brain is a powerful little engine that adjusts to its environment. And in today's episode, we sit down with a neurofeedback practitioner to learn a lot about the brain, unpack neurodivergence, and help shine a light on what we can do about it. I hope you enjoy. Let's take a listen. I am a neurofeedback technician here, so I run the neurofeedback department, um, doing sessions with that. And then I'm also a talk therapist here as well. Mm-hmm. Why I am clinic? Why I am clinic? Well, I think I am clinic does something really special by creating a niche for the LGBTQ population. Um, on top of that, it's a really, really diverse and beautiful community that allows for a lot of different types of people to come in and a lot of different types of treatments offered here. Yeah. When you got hired on, I remember you saying something like, this is my dream job Mm -hmm. because it has part of the talk therapy, the master's in counseling, and also the neurofeedback component. Um, Tell us a little bit about why you fell in love or how you discovered and fell in love with neurofeedback. Yeah, I I think when I did find this job, it was such a dream for me because for a while I've wanted to incorporate talk therapy and neurofeedback in the same realm. And it, it started with my love of neurofeedback. And I think if I'm tracing it back, you know, my love for neurofeedback came at a time where I was really needing help getting resources to, you know, work on my mental health. Um, So, you know, as a young kid, I was really hyperactive. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD and I felt like there was a lot going on in my head at once and I didn't know how to quite take care of myself. I didn't know how to really embrace that. And I think that's when I discovered neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. For people who might not quite yet know about neurofeedback, give us a little, just a short summary of what is it. Yeah, so I guess the most basic way I like to explain it is it's a type of operant conditioning. So the, a nice way of, a nice analogy I like to use is like you have a child and you want the child to do the dishes. So in order for the child to do something that they don't always, you know, want to do, we then reward them with something. So think about a child's like, okay, you can do the dishes and then you can have this cookie and you can play this game. Mm -hmm. And so as a young kid, you give them that reward and then they are more susceptible to want to do the dishes, Mm -hmm. to do those things that they don't necessarily want to do. Mm -hmm. Neurofeedback is kind of similar So what it does is it looks at, we look at your brainwave activity and we try to, basically we play tones to help you regulate to a more sufficient level. So how that works is that we have operant conditioning. So there's a reward system where tones are played and the more times you have, you hear the tones, the more you're able to start to be at that more regulated brainwave level. So the tones are kind of like the rewards for the little kid. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give an example in neurofeedback. So if you have some really elevated brainwave, like high beta brainwave activities, that's going to create a lot of anxiety. So what we do is we 
through our computer system anytime throughout session you get to a more regulated level of that high beta brainwave we reward it the more you come in the more you learn to be on that regulated level the more you'll be able to see yourself actually become regulated in the real world mm-hmm. and so it, it works through that operant conditioning mm-hmm. yeah and it's powerful when you first went in, not knowing how to kind of manage yourself, I like to have said that, what did you notice with the training? Was it instantaneous? Was it progressive? I had a couple really aha moments. Um, I really did not notice until I was in the room and doing sessions how my life was l- really being led by reactivity. I didn't have the capacity to pause and think and respond to things. I was just running on a reactive state of mind. And so when I actually was able to get, you know, work on my neurofeedback and have more regulation in session, I would leave and feel like I actually could like pause and become more of like an observer in my experience. So what that means is like we run throughout life but there's something really magical about actually like stepping back and kind of seeing what's going on before you go and react to that or respond to that text message or go and do that Mm -hmm. and it gives you the 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 ability to really sit with things and actually like intellectualize what makes sense for you and i never really had that ability or really knew how to tap into that until i started to get sessions done Did you even, it sounds like you didn't even know that you were dysregulated. It just felt normal? It felt normal. I didn't know. I mean, I always felt kind of misunderstood and I I always felt like there was something different about me. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I would be in settings and I felt like there was so much going on in my head and everyone felt like they were just kind of moving throughout life. Mm -hmm. It seemed normal what they were doing. It seemed like something was off with me, but I never really realized how reactive and you know unable to really kind of be aware of some of those things I was going through Mm -hmm. what was that experience of feeling misunderstood like for you I think it was not seeing or hearing from other people that were like me so feeling misunderstood felt like everyone was kind of checking off their boxes, going to school, you know, finding their partner, doing, you know, this, this, and this, and everything felt so mechanical. Mm -hmm. And for me, nothing ever has felt mechanical. Everything has felt like such a process. And so it felt misunderstood because I felt like I couldn't see myself in other people. Mm. Um, Like, odd. Yeah, like I was like, why is this such a hard process for me? But this person is able to just kind of do it. Um, And I created a lot of shame around that, (laughs) which, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes I see a lot of us, because I have ADHD in my brain map, where there's a, a lot of shame. How are they doing this so easily and why can't I? How can they be productive and I can't? How are they motivated and I can't? I'm not. Um, But oftentimes I also see that kind of existing alongside of anger. I'm just constantly angry that they can and I can't. So it's like this shame-anger combo. Oh, it creates a level of resentment in your relationships, your relational dynamics, because you want to be like them and a real big shift for me was realizing and still realizing and acknowledging kind of my unique identity Mm -hmm. and neurofeedback has been a tool for me to be able to observe my unique traits Mm -hmm. and also be more accepting of like okay i might not be able to do things a plus B plus C plus D. Like things might look more abstract for me. And I think it's a journey of accepting mm-hmm. and being able to adjust to how I'm actually process things versus what I guess I was told I should process. And how? 
audience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's um, a couple of words. I think like neurodivergent, uh, mental health challenge, disability for some of us. I think that those words really give us the permission to exist in our own experience. So hopefully as a way of combating the shame as a way of mm-hmm. finding a place of confidence. Um, so hopefully that's a step that if you're listening with some neurodivergence, that's a, a possibility. It's definitely a possibility. Um, and I think tools like neurofeedback help us actually see that like we can still be proud of our neurodivergence and have some functionality involved in it too Mm -hmm. um in a way where we can embrace our neurodivergence Mm -hmm. and still get the things we need to get done done on the terms that feel best for us not based on society but based on like okay i cleaned the dishes today and i was able to read and now i'm like celebrating that because some days that can feel really hard for me for sure like things like that yes absolutely there was a season where we had just brought neurofeedback to the clinic and so everybody was getting their map because i was a nerd and (laughs) i was like let me let me hook you up it's the best (laughs) but for years my poor fiance i would say babe you have adhd no i don't no i don't yes you do no i don't and then he would frustrate me um he was always late um executing tasks scatterbrain interrupting procrastination like crazy and so when we brought neurofeedback here i was so excited to get his map done and prove to him that he finally had adhd and then i did my map and i saw my adhd for the first time and didn't know i really had it and my adhd was worse than his on the map so that was Mm, swallowing some humble pill yeah but i think to your point earlier it's this idea that how does joe embrace and how do i embrace the fact that we have adhd and also give each other permission to navigate the world to execute tasks to engage or disengage with the energy that we may or may not have and to really allow the adhd to have its space in the way we interact and and accomplish things as a team as opposed to allowing ADHD to be the trigger that causes us to argue Mm. and so again returning Mm -hmm. to this place of saying I get to be confident in the way I'm navigating the world and the relationship has to adjust for that Mm -hmm. you know I'm definitely if you look at me compared to Joe I'm very relaxed but I'm also very type A and the way that I deal with my ADHD is to get tasks done right now mm, to execute them. Right. <laughs> and that's not how Joe that's... engages his ADHD. Yes. And yes. so at, without knowing we were both battling ADHD or that ADHD was the battle we were waging, we were triggered by our symptoms because he wasn't moving fast enough. I was too controlling and moving too fast. And it was creating a lot of relational friction, but I love this idea that the, the, the ability that a brain map has, because seeing the ADHD in both of our maps allowed me to chill the heck out with him mm-hmm. and really respect his pace, his flow, his energy, and the accommodations that he needs. And it's also, instead of demanding space for my accommodations, because I didn't know that they were accommodations, I could ask for them peacefully. Mm. So I think a brain map is wow, a very powerful tool. <laughs> Not only yeah. in terms of how we experience life and live in our own bodies, but also to allow that the the data from a map to really speak towards the dynamic and and how a couple can evolve because of the mental health and the neurodivergence that exists within the relationship. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think what I got from that, like a big word that kept popping up in my head, it does that, I like words that pop up, is like compassion. Mm -hmm. Like brain maps create a level of compassion for our loved ones and ourselves because I know from my own experience and what you're explaining is very similar, is like when you're dealing with these mental kind of 
experiences, because I don't want to call them issues, <laughs> you know, ADHD, neurodivergence, these things that you have, you know, inside you, it can feel for me for a long time, it can feel like, am I crazy? Am I just imagining this? Am I just making this over? Am I making this up? Am I just being lazy? You know, all of these, am I just, am I just, am I just get squashed the minute the brain map comes in because the validity of literally science showing you what's going on along with just the validation that our clients have along with you and I and Joe, we're all able to see the fact that like there are things going on Mm -hmm. and how can we navigate that? How can we have compassion for one another knowing that like, okay, whoa, like sounds like Joe may have like elevated theta, Mm -hmm. like understanding like, what that means for him and what that looks like for him may be different than you and may be different than me. For sure. Yes. I think you're kind of highlighting something I really uh, find a lot of value in teaching neurofeedback clients is the fact that ADHD in the brain is not turned on by one thing. There's actually nine subtypes of ADHD. Yep. So it depends on which of the five frequencies we see in the brain and in which area of the brain can turn on something like ADHD or anxiety, depression, seizure disorders, auditory processing disorders, Mm -hmm. disorders, you name it. Yeah. And so I really like that there's, again, the map because my ADHD was theta and I think Joe's was alpha. Okay. And so it was really, really interesting. And again, to see mine was in the upper right hemisphere right. of the brain and Joe's was kind of just all saturating right behind yeah. the forehead. And that's going to present differently. Yeah. And so I'm going to observe Joe without the brain map and be really critical of who he can't be for me. The go get him partner to execute the test that I want right now. <laughs> right. Or the guy who's going to get up jump out of bed and want to go to yoga with me on a Sunday morning at 8 a.m. That's not how Joe's brain is going to function because his neurology is just inherently different than mine. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about the brain map is it it gives us that data, like we said, but it also gives us a roadmap. Mm -hmm. Like, so using those examples, like, okay, what are the things, like, that you want to work on? Mm -hmm. Here are the things that are happening, what are the things you want to work on? And then what we try to do here at I Am Clinic and I'm sure other places with neurofeedback is we put what you want to do and what the brain map is saying and we create a plan mm-hmm. because sometimes I look at a brain map and I'm like, ooh, this is probably what's happening. But then you talk to the person and something else is happening. So it's mm-hmm. important to take the, the quantitative data, the qualitative data and create a bigger picture mm-hmm. so that it's actually individualized for the client, right. not just solely the brain map Mm -hmm. and i think that's what you were talking about like figuring out you know what works for joe or what works for you are going to be different totally different if we could go back and rewind the vhs of you growing up (laughs) from the big camcorder uh, that we used to wear on our shoulders oh my god i remember (laughs) that i love that (laughs) we were gonna pop your home movies um, into a VCR player. I, can't, I almost forgot the letters VCR. What would we see? What did your symptoms look like as a little kiddo? Yeah. Um, I think I think I want to focus really, you know, I think the, the thing that comes up first is grief. Um, I have had in my family, a lot of people get sick mm. from an early age to high school, mm-hmm. to college. You know, I've watched a lot of people have terminal cancer, mm. heart attacks. You know, my dad died. My dad got diagnosed with extremely rare cancer in tenth in my 10th grade um, of high school. It was called salivary gland cancer, where it was like in his salivary gland, which is so rare. Mm. And in order to help him, they didn't know if he was going to make it 10 months, but he made it five years. So I spent the le- the next five years really like taking care of him and like watching a really beautiful journey, but really being around a lot of sick people, being in hospices, being in hospitals, taking doctor's appointments. And all of those things really impacted me 
because it made me have really, really high anxiety around my own health. And it created this period of hyperfixation around symptomology, what's going on, sensations. I became very somatically focused mm -hmm. that something was always wrong mm -hmm. because that's kind of the rhetoric that I was shown in life. You know, something is wrong. Yeah. Someone is dying. You know, someone is, you know, the amount of shivas as a Jew I've been to is sad, mm -hmm. you know, and um, it impacted the, the symptoms the most, you know, most of my anxiety was around health mm -hmm. and death. You know, sometimes I would get calls from family members. And the first thing that happened to me was that I would have my heart would be racing. And then I would think that like they were calling to tell me something bad because mm -hmm. I was so used to being told something was happening. And so I think my system got stuck in that process of like something bad is always about to happen based off of real experiences. And, you know, I think grief can do that, especially at a young age, you know, losing my dad and my aunt within the same year mm -hmm. was really, really traumatic. Um, not even just because I love them both, but how it was done. Sure. It was so out of control, mm -hmm. you know, like we didn't, there wasn't anything we could do, mm -hmm. you know. Well, that powerlessness. Yeah. The fear. One of the things that I think you're describing very well is um, the activation of something we call the limbic system. So I describe the limbic system oftentimes as like a trauma sponge. So the limbic system has the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the, uh, a couple of other things, but one of the major pieces, the amygdala and the cingulate gyrus, and those all function like a a system that keeps the body ready for fight, flight, or freeze, or activates it in the fight, flight, or freeze. And I think as we sit in that kind of powerlessness and fear, hypervigilance, the grief, often enough and at intense levels, the brain will actually recalibrate to sit in that new posture. Maybe kind of a, a weird analogy here, but I had a Jeep Wrangler that hardly would start in college. Mm. And I was going to go to, um, for the summer, I was going to live in Grand Lake at a very high elevation. So I took mm, it to the mechanic. Pretty. It was awesome. But the mechanic was fixing all of the things to make sure that it lasted all summer. But the final touch was he adjusted the carburetor so that it could run on less oxygen. And that's like the limbic system. It will adjust so that it can stay in trauma mode because it's mm. going to expect more mm -hmm. trauma. And so because the brain has hormones like dopamine and serotonin and electricity like delta, theta, alpha, beta, and high beta, as we go up into fight, flight, or freeze often enough, and again, at intense levels enough, the brain will recalibrate to live up there. Um, and then because it's electric, it just creates new circuits. And once those circuits are turned on, they just never turned off. Yes, those circuits were running in overtime. Yeah. You know, they were running even when I was turned off. Mm -hmm. You know, sleep has been a, a major chronic issue for me. And what you're explaining is exactly how neurofeedback helped me to help the transmission run mm -hmm. at a less high frequency, mm -hmm. you know, and that was the work. The work was to try to train and teach me through that operant conditioning that you can come down mm -hmm. to a more regulated level. And I mean, that process in itself, you know, the main symptom I had was that I had so much negative ruminations and fears, mm -hmm. so many thoughts in my head. And to have that neurofeedback bring it down mm -hmm. was like life changing. I was like, wow, I can actually, I'm not obsessing over this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed with clients and myself with neurofeedback is, I use this word a lot, is subtlety. Mm -hmm. So subtle changes. Mm -hmm. So you may notice that wow, yesterday, like something that usually triggers me, I actually was able to kind of just not get bothered by it. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, we, we always are looking for these big things. Like how can we fix anxiety? How can we fix depression? How can we fix this? But what we, what, you know, what I find the most valuable and with neurofeedback is like, how can we actually notice the small changes? Mm -hmm. How can we actually embrace the small changes that actually create a larger, more sustainable system? Yeah, one word that I hear y'all using in the neurofeedback realm is training. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's really important because this is, it's not taking that carburetor and readjusting it for a lower altitude. Training in this regard is, is showing the brain and rewarding it one step at a time. So that way we, we show the brain how to, how to function at more of a baseline for sure but in a way that rewards the new circuitry mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Going back though, I, I really appreciated the training of that because it was, I would leave one training session and say like, oh my gosh, this feels so wonderful to not have the cingulate gyrus so focused mm-hmm. everything that can go Everything, wrong. all the yeah. ruminations about your health, oh. whatever. Yeah. And like after the third session, it would go away for like 30 minutes and then it came back. (laughs) And then after the fourth session, it went away for like two hours and then it came back. And then the fifth, it was gone half a day. And the sixth, it was gone like a full day. And then like seven, eight, and nine, it just like went away and never came back. And I think watching that process was so illuminating for me because it showed me just how much I was suffering you know, a very different experience than yours, but it, it plagued me in a different way. When I was uh, five years old, it's 1988, we were caravanning with my huge ass Hispanic family. Oh my God, so, Disneyland. so cute. So <laughs> and we had a classic Subaru hatchback and my mom and dad, we left Denver at like 4 a.m. So they put this, the seats down, huge, you know, all the blankets and we had like, you know, of course, the lunch bowls and the Capri Suns and our dolls and our coloring books. So we're sitting in the back of this car with no safety belts, just relaxing and hanging out. And my mom is driving and she fell asleep at the wheel. And she lost control and hit the guardrail on the right side and, of course, woke up and jerked us back. Oh and then God. the whole caravan, all of the Hispanic people, we pull over on the side of the road. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you, about 10 feet in front of the spot where my mom hit the guardrail, the guardrail ended and it went down the, the, there was a huge cliff, like this huge ravine. And so one of my very dramatic aunts <laughs> runs up to the car and she's screaming, Debbie, you could have killed your family. You could have killed your family. Mm-hmm. And I'm this five years old. Like it wasn't that scary of a situation. My mom just kind of bumped the guardrail and she woke up and pulled over. Hearing the way my aunt responded, it left me feeling, one, like my mom was so vulnerable, and two, that because she was so vulnerable, death could take her at any moment. My first day of kindergarten, Mm. I bawled my eyes out because I thought my mom was going to die in a car accident and never come back for me. Mm. So I went into fight, flight, or freeze, this huge, intense experience. So my body gets to practice living calibrated at this higher intensity. And then every day for the rest of my life until pretty much my sophomore year of college, I thought my mom was going to die in a car accident and never come back. And that exposure, the way that trauma lives in the body, the trauma relives, we go into fight, flight, or freeze. The brain goes up into that higher elevation, quote unquote, and then it never leaves. And so I experienced incredible anxiety. And the way trauma works is then when I started falling in love, the people that I found in love with, yeah, it was fun. But the moment I realized I loved them was the moment I started fearing that they were going to die in a car accident wow. and never come back. Wow. Of course, we know that's how trauma works, but rehearsing that trauma over and over and over again is going to keep my brain elevated. Yeah. So there was no surprise that when we did my brain map, we just saw my cingulate gyrus on fire. 
It's because I was stuck in Fat Fire Freeze every day as a kid, and then it just right. never turned off. Right. That's what the brain does. Right. I, yes, I resonate with that a lot. Um, one of the first neurofeedback technicians that I saw said something to me that is exactly what you're saying is like, we can't in here, we can't change what's going to happen in the external world, Mm -hmm. but we can help you learn how to respond to things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you're saying. And it, it changed my life because I realized like, we can dwell on, well, what if this person dies? And what if this happens? And your mom can get in a car accident. But we actually have no control over that. Right. And as much as it feels like we do, like the more, if we think about it more, maybe we can control it. But the reality is, it's actually just making us feel really uncomfortable and overwhelmed. For so sure. I think the work has really been to, and what you're explaining is to help understand how to respond internally. Mm-hmm. Because... We can't change the way someone is abusive to us. We can't change the way somebody got into a car accident that we love and dies. We can just work on how we can respond to these things. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you can positively with a smile Mm -hmm. respond to things. Be realistic. But, you know, like things like that, what you were explaining is like that was a trauma response. Mm -hmm. So understanding how how can you, you know, work through it? How can you get out of that? Because... At the end of the day, you can't control if your mom gets into a car accident. That's the scary part. And that's the part that I've had to sit with for so many years Mm -hmm. is that I can't actually control a lot of things, but I can control myself. And that's both really beautiful and really hard at times, especially with like when you care about someone like a partner, you're like, I just want the best for them and I want them to do this and I want them to succeed, but you can only take them so far. You have to just be there, support them, and honor where they're at. If you find yourself managing neurodivergence on the daily, here are a couple things that can be very helpful. The first is titration, stemming from the field of somatic experiencing. Hop on YouTube and search Anxiety Meditation I Am Clinic. There you'll find me with god-awful orange hair after a mishap at the salon, taking you through the steps of calming down your central nervous system. Although I made this for anxiety, you can use it for any negative experience that pushes your body into fight, flight, or freeze. You can also search emotional focus tapping in YouTube. I love EFT. There's a thousand videos for it. And of course, meditation. These are all easy at-home techniques to help regulate your central nervous system. And now... Let's get back to the show. I love what you're saying here. When I'm talking with feedback clients, one of the things that I always tell them is our brains have little machines, right? Like we have the powerful machine that keeps us resilient. When we have self-confidence, we can live through a traumatic moment and not internalize it as trauma because that, that power machine was so activated. And we can also have the powerlessness machine. And if that sucker is running with high beta or high mm-hmm. beta or high alpha, we live through that trauma moment. We're going to internalize. We're going to suck that moment in, shove it through our powerless machine, and create so much trauma content for the body to internalize. Mm-hmm. And so I love what you're saying here because we cannot control the external influences. Mm-hmm. But if Neurofeedback gives us the ability to shut down the machines that don't serve us and activate the ones that keep us resilient so that we have the best ability to fare well if adversity comes our way. Mm-hmm. I love thinking about this because I, in our brain maps, as you know, 100% of our queer clients' maps come back with allergic right. activity right. and cingulate gyrus. Yeah. And we always talk that that's no surprise when queer people are growing up in a closeted environment saying who will love me will they love me am i acceptable am i enough and when the answers and the feedback that we get from a cisgender homophobic transgender heterosexist world the answers are always no so then we say i am damaged i am dirty and when we we get up we prepare for school we go, we feel damaged, dirty, and disgusting, rejected. Mm-hmm. We go into fight, flight, or freeze. So we're right. there for eight hours a day, right. then we go home. 
We feel shame and rejection for our family. We're still in fight, fight, or freeze. Freeze, excuse me. And of course, our cingulate's going to activate. It's going to stay there at this intensity. Right. It might cool down, then it goes back up. Right. Down. Eventually, it's never going to turn on. And so this is one reason why I love neurofeedback, specifically for the queer community, because I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, and this is like my life's purpose, is to empower the queer community to overcome all of that developmental trauma mm. and return back to the place where we understand our true role. The, the, a mind, literally a brain that can process, I am enough, I matter, I'm inherently valuable, and I experience my inherent value as opposed to being trained to believe I'm damaged. And we could do talk therapy for years, but one of the reasons why I brought neurofeedback to the clinic is because talk therapy isn't going to change the circuitry in our brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's... I think you and I share that same vision, Mm -hmm. and I think that's why I Am Clinic was such a dream for me because I share the same vision of like the queer community needs to have more access to neurofeedback mm-hmm. and Kate uh, our supervisor Katie gives a really great analogy of what you just explained of like neurofeedback gives you give you know queer folks the toolbox it's like almost like an image of like putting the toolbox next to them mm-hmm. and now they have the opportunity to actually take the toolboxes and tools and mm-hmm. use them so it's like obviously an invisible toolbox, but it's a resource. It's a modality to help give people that coping skills, give people the ability to observe, to have greater awareness. And talk therapy does the same thing, but I think it's just like an added bonus, really. You know, we we always talk about in the community here, in the mental health community, like mind-body-soul connection. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times there's a lot of different factors to that Mm -hmm. and what neuro does is really tap into that like brain that really like neurological part Mm -hmm. while also you know for me at least with my clients like we talk a lot about we talk and we check in about for 15 20 minutes about their experience and so what what i find really important as a neurofeedback clinician is to tap into the neurological piece but really tap into their story and connect the two because yes there's circuit stuff that you want to focus on but it's like what really is making sense to them Mm -hmm. and so figuring out a good storyline for them Mm -hmm. so that they can really carry on and they can also see the benefit in it because this can go over people's heads so quickly and i think giving the queer queer population the tools to really be able to see this is amazing and it comes back to what i said before of like we can't we can change we can help work on you know how the queer community is seen in the ex in the external world like we can do things and lobby and you know work on politics but you know in our niche right here you know we want to help empower the individuals first you know we want to give queer people their power back their superpower you know this, this may be a tangent, but queer people in general, like the LGBTQ community is so inspiring because what it does is it says, I'm going to be my own individual expression. I don't care what I was told. I don't know what I was told. I'm going to take it into my hands and I'm going to be the most truest, authentic version of myself. And that can feel so scary for other people because it's so vulnerable Mm -hmm. but the more we can tap into that the more we can give that power back to us Mm -hmm. the more we can inspire others to express themselves and be who they really are Mm -hmm. because a lot of us are holding on to this like shame of like oh like i might be a little feminine like Mm -hmm. i might want to wear heels Mm -hmm. all of that is amazing but you know we have to get to that place Mm -hmm. where we want to see other people doing that I think that there's, for me in my training, there was this big difference between I have anxiety and I want to express myself in a certain way, so let me find all of this energy to be courageous, to get out there and execute mm-hmm. this, and to hold it, to have that stamina, so that way by the time I get home I'm completely drained and I peel it off and I crash on my bed. Right. Versus 
I am so tied to my confidence because my powerless machine is turned off. My anxiety machine has been dismantled. My depression machine was obliterated. And now I want to express myself, but now, baby, I feel the confidence and the power mm -hmm. and the enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And it feels like I'm rocking my shit all day long rather than tolerating the pressure of being myself. Mm -hmm. And it was so powerful to wake up one morning feeling all of that exhaustive, anxious energy to go into a training and then to hold the same expression of myself from a totally different place within me mm -hmm. and to watch the, the painful one slip away over time. Mm -hmm. It really is, I think it's not only a mental health change, I believe for me it was an identity change oh, yeah. because I finally got to see myself in a way that wasn't colored or diluted by all of this trauma and anxiety, depression, fear. It's evolutionary. I agree. It's evolutionary because you are embracing your identity and with neurofeedback, you're actually able to help get yourself to a regulated level so you can have more resources to do yours do that and that's evolutionary because it's so easy to grab onto band-aids like we can try this for a little or this is going to work for a little but the work is really diving in and really being like how can i really change on a s systems level you know, it starts with neuro in the brain, but it can also be, you know, talking about, you know, how can I change how I show up in spaces? Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel like the evolution is because it's so easy to just sort of take something to associate or take something to avoid or take something and feel a little bit better, but feel better, you know, feel worse again. But it's another thing to really just kind of step into the unknown of like, you're going to feel bad, you're going to feel good, you're going to feel this, you're going to feel that and allow yourself to really move through that mm -hmm. peacefully yeah, yeah peacefully and also just unapologetically mm -hmm. and you know all tools like neuro but also trauma-informed care mm -hmm. and really just group care community care all of that stuff you know right. to give yourself the resource to feel more empowered to do those things for me trauma work and neurofeedback were a dynamic duo mm-hmm because it was so important for me to turn off the trauma machine, the powerlessness machine, whatever we want to call it, and then to go into trauma therapy and process all of the content that was stored in my body, like the body keeps the store kind of mm, uh -huh. stuff. And so it was like one, turning off the machine, two, depleting all the residue that was in there. And then after that, to live through something that could have felt traumatic, but to have that machine not there anymore, to swallow it and to manufacture it into trauma was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I, neurofeedback again was so helpful because I got to see the transition over time of what it felt like to live through an experience with the trauma machine activated and to internalize it versus not. Mm -hmm. it changed my life. Yeah. It's... It's life-changing. I feel like, you know, with with neurofeedback, it's the opportunity. Like, before I discovered neurofeedback, my first instance with mental health, and I'm sure you're going to laugh at this because it's just the reality, is like CBT, mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy. And for listeners that might not know, it's a lot about cognitions, thought processes. And a lot of it is really helpful. But for somebody that's highly neurodivergent like me, I would, you know, work on trying to change my thought process. Like, I am healthy. I'm not going to die. <laughs> I don't have this disease. And in a way, it helped, but it didn't really take the feeling away. It didn't really take the intensity of, like, I'm still internally worried about it based on a lot of trauma. And I think when I started to do neurofeedback, um, one of the main protocols was lowering that high beta in the cingulate so that I can take down some of my thoughts so that I can kind of sift through and realize like, okay, this is where I'm at now mm -hmm. and kind of more embrace it yeah. and understand it rather than try to change it, you know? And, and I think changing it is really helpful, but you've got to feel it first. You've got to understand where it comes from and you've got to get the resources to bring it down. So it's more organic. Right. 
less of a force like no you are a powerful and it's like well if you don't believe you're powerful and you're just telling yourself you're powerful there needs to be that middle part totally. that work right yes and that's why neurofeedback is so helpful to activate that powerful quote-unquote machine yeah so that you feel the toolbox it rather than produce it somehow. yeah yeah you feel it, and then you notice it actually changing, too, mm-hmm. the more we regulate your brainwave activity. Right. I think the last thing I want to say is that there is hope for relief and that you don't need to suffer all the time just because you have these qualities and you know that there are people out there that want to help you find that relief and it can feel really lonely and it can feel really hopeless at times but just even listening to something like this and understanding that there are people and resources that can at least help you get moving in that direction you know nothing is constant there's always going to be pain and there's always going to be suffering but there also can be relief and joy so trying to help find you those those things too is really important and i hope that you know people listening can um, find and access that the brain uses hormones and electricity to send communication throughout the body while hormones like serotonin and cortisol send very specific messages electricity sends its own messaging throughout the body And just as there are different hormones, there are different frequencies of electricity. Delta, which is really shallow and slow, theta, alpha, and beta, which is very sharp, deep, and fast. When we see certain frequencies in certain areas of the brain, we easily diagnose neurodivergence, seizure disorders, learning disabilities, and many other ailments. For a nerd like me, looking at brain maps is completely awesome. I first walked into a neurofeedback office panicked, not because I was doing something new, but because anxiety had consumed my mind and body. As I sat in the chair for the brain mapping, I was so hopeful that it would find something to tell me other than I was just weak or lacking moral fortitude. And when the results came in, I started to cry. In the prefrontal cortex, where rational thinking, emotional regulation, and the blocks to erroneous thinking live, my brain was flooded with theta, which means my brain in that area was kind of sleeping. And to make matters worse, there was incredibly strong waves of beta throwing off the posterior regions of my brain. In other words, my brain was sleeping in the front and chaos in the back. The doctor described for me that only 10% of my prefrontal cortex was functional, allowing depression, anxiety, ADHD, impulsivity, emotional dysregulation, and erroneous thinking to run rampant without my control. Seeing those results gave me a type of freedom from shame that is so hard to articulate. Growing up, I would wonder how certain people could control their alcohol so well how my best friend in college could type so freaking fast, and how other people seem to live with such little stress or have more resilience to the stress in their lives than I did. I was shocked at how some people live without anxiety, feeling comfortable being alone, never feeling panic in romantic relationships, and how they didn't feel being separated from their loved ones. In all of my wonderings and observing, I blamed myself for not being better, not having figured out how to be more disciplined, resilient, or a stronger person. Something, and we all know the slithering messages of shame, was wrong with me. But that brain map helped me see that I wasn't inherently deficient as the result of some moral failure or the inability to be more formidable, ethical, regimented person. I just had a ton of theta and beta blocking my brain from its fullest potential. I ran home with that brain map in my hand and showed my cousins. I talked about it with my mom. I wanted everyone to know I wasn't a weak human, but I had a legitimate medical cause that explained my disposition. 
There is a profound voice we read in many psychology books, and it belongs to Carl Jung. Jung wasn't such a fan of diagnosing people like we do with our medical textbooks, the DSM-5 of mental disorders. His belief that human biology was just diversity. And although diagnoses help us identify the right treatment modality, after looking at hundreds of brain maps, I have come to find a great deal of peace in knowing that our brains, because of genetic traumatic brain injuries, trauma, and developmental trauma, have the profound ability to compensate, adjust, shift, and respond to our environments. I have come to believe that diagnoses like ADHD are nothing more than human diversity showing itself in a very unique way. In many ways, I agree with Carl Jung. And when we see that theta in the prefrontal cortex can cause depression, ADHD, and anxiety, and that we can treat it, we strip our experience of the shame that leaves us feeling less than. God knows, we don't need more of that in our queer lives. My hope is that if you or someone you know is neurodivergent, that we can begin to hold compassion for the way they and us function in the world. When we learn that Joe's perpetual tardiness and my emotional outbursts were direct symptoms of our ADHD brains, we dropped our need to teach and control one another and picked up compassion. And that for us has made a huge difference. I believe that with all the developmental trauma we sustained in our closeted years, as outpersons in a hetero, trans, bi, everything phobic, heterosexist, cisgender society, we deserve to be resilient and thrive. Let us use trauma growth to its fullest potential and skyrocket. Although neurofeedback is a powerful resource, it is one of many. If you find yourself in pain, managing neurodivergence or mental illnesses, start getting curious. There may be a great remedy out there just waiting for you. And of course, all of us here at I Am Clinic and I Am Council are here to help you find those resources. To Adam, I am so thankful that you are part of our team, that you bring such a gentle touch with a lot of power and conviction. Your passion for healing and growth inspires me to be better. Thank you for letting us learn from your story, from your pain, from your brilliance, and your willingness to fight for more and for improvement. To all of you listening, Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.